The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I'm glad that you're all with us. You know, at Holy Cross, uh, we're committed to telling one story. We're committed to telling the story. It's the story of redemption, uh, the good news of how God saves his people by sending his son, born of a woman, and living that perfect life in obedience to God's law and all of his commands and dying to pay the penalty for our sins. And this story doesn't begin at Christmas, at the Christmas manger, and end at the Easter resurrection. It, it begins way before that, and it, and it continues into all of eternity. And here's something interesting about the Christmas story, because these next few weeks we're going to be talking about Advent, and I know we look forward to this. I love this time of year where we talk about Christmas-themed uh, sermons and stories. We sing the songs that are Christmas-themed. It is, it is a story that's not only fitting for four or five weeks out of the year. Um, if we think that if, if we're preaching things that are only fitting for a couple weeks out of the year, then it's really not truly the Christmas story. Uh, for the Christmas story is just as relevant in July as it is in December. And so it, it includes these big dramatic events, you know, the Advent, the Christmas story. It, it includes the creation and incarnation. Uh, the crucifixion and resurrection, but also includes the, the mundane things, the things that are seemingly insignificant, the people, the personal struggles, the, the daily events, the countless promises that God makes to his people that we see unfolding through just normal activity in their lives. Uh, it, 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 we find the story, we see it unfolding in things that just happen behind the curtain that we often give very little focus to. And these parts of the story are so important. And I want to spend the next few weeks, uh, four weeks, including Christmas Eve, uh, we want to remember the story, reorienting our hearts and minds around this story, cultivating habits that flow out of the gospel story. And this is a season of Advent. You've heard that. What does Advent mean? Advent means the arrival or the coming. We're, we're looking forward to, longing for Christ's coming. God's people have always been waiting for that. They've always been waiting. Ever since guilt, the guilt of sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve rebelling against God, people, God's people have been waiting for Him, waiting for Him to make it right, to fulfill His promises, to come back and, and save them, to redeem them in all of creation. So people waited for a very long time. Advent in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament were waiting for God to, to answer that longing of how will you fix this? How will you save us? They were looking forward to Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, when will you come and be with us, be with your people and save us from all of our pain and sin and sorrow? And it was through sending his son that God would answer this. This is how I will, uh, this is what they waited for, the, the Messiah who would save them from their sin. And then Advent for the New Testament people, that's us, for the church, for those, now we, we are post Christmas. Advent for us is like looking, we look back to that, how God has answered uh, his, uh, those questions for how will you save us. We look at the cross and we look at the empty tomb to see that the work of our salvation was accomplished not by our character but by the character and work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And yet we're still waiting too, right? It's not done. And we are still in the season of Advent as we as God's people on this side of Christmas are waiting. We're waiting for, there's things we still long for. We have been justified by faith. We are made right with God through faith in Jesus. And yet, 
the work of God of the gospel and the kingdom is incomplete. Right? We still struggle with sin every day. We still are uh, oppressed by the burden and guilt of sin and the consequences of sin in our life. We're still burdened by things. We still uh, age and decay and, and die. We still have sorrow and grief and, and sin that we struggle with every day. And so we are waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and to restore everything to its intended good, to take away sin, to wipe every tear away from our eyes. And so there's so much more that we have yet to experience. And this kind of longing, that's what I want to do in these next weeks is just I want this kind of longing should be something that is a characteristic of every follower of Jesus, someone who is waiting with great expectation and, and longing, and something about us should really groan in our hearts of like, God, when will you come? Jesus, when are you coming? And the Bible tells us that this should be a, a distinct characteristic of every, every disciple of Jesus, that within us we have this desire to see Jesus. And so we look and we wait and we keep our eyes to the heavens, as the scriptures tell us. And waiting's difficult. Yes? <laughs> waiting is difficult. It is, it is something that is hard to do. We don't like it. Almost all of our TV watching at home is done um, by, by Netflix or DVR or Apple TV. I don't think our children have ever watched a commercial. <laughs> right? They've never had to sit through a commercial. And I hear sometimes these gasps and screams from the other room, and I think someone broke their leg, but no, a commercial came on, and they're like, what has happened? What do we do? Get this out of here, and we just fast forward it. You probably don't know a lot of the buttons on your remote, but in the dark, you could find the FF button, right? The, you, can, you know where the fast forward button is on your remote. We, we just want to get there. We, we want to do that. I mean, we, walking is not fast enough, and so we, we, you know, we, we, we look at an animal that's faster than us and say, I want to jump on the back of that. Maybe that'll get me to where I'm going. So we go from, you know, from walking to, to riding animals, to you know, horses, to, to, to riding a car, to an airplane, to a rocket ship, like we, and, and, and it's never fast enough. We want to get someplace, but it's never quick enough. There's a saying that goes, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Do you know why that's a saying? It's because the, the journey is not fun. The journey is, is long, and we just want to get there. And so we have to, we have to remind people that, that the process, even though it is difficult, it is purposeful, God's using it. We're, we're people that want to get where we are going and to get there as fast as we can. And this season, Christmas is a collision with that mindset. It is a radical collision with our hearts longing for a fast pace of life to get where we're going really quick and to have results immediately. The Christmas story is a radical collision with that mindset. And God is saying, you are up to be people who wait with great expectation and who are patient, keeping your eyes on me. And we say, is there a faster way? How can we speed up the process? And it's agonizing because we're not in control of that pace and so here we are, and I want you to use this time, this Advent season, to allow God to work in your heart to slow down the pace, because we do not have patience for the pace of following Jesus. We don't have patience for it, and yet we can't do anything about it. But in that pace, there is great joy, and it's where we find Christ. It's where we find His peace. It's never fast enough for us. And so Christmas is about reminding ourselves and reminding one another about how we are to spend our time while we wait. That's what we will do. 
These sermons will be a little differently. It'll be about telling that story. It'll be about getting to where we go a little slower. doesn't mean my sermons will be longer, <laughs> uh, just, just so, so that you're not afraid. Uh, but we want to be there in this process. We want to sit and we want to allow God to work in our hearts. So I invite you into that. God's people in the Old Testament had a way of reminding themselves of this story, reminding themselves of what they were to do as they were waiting for, for their Messiah, for God's promises to come through. And they did it through reciting uh, what has come, become known as the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means hear. It's called Shema because it's the first word of a prayer that they would pray, a, a declaration of faith. It's a Hebrew word, Shema. It means hear. It means listen. It means understand. It means pay attention to what is about to happen. It would be an opening prayer for all of their prayers. Every time they would gather for worship, every morning worship service, it would be recited twice a day, morning and evening. They would recite this. They would say this word every single time they gathered to remember the story. They would begin by saying, Shema, they would, Shema hear. Here are the verses where we see this instituted in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They shall you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Soon after God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt after 400 years of oppression in Egypt, they began every single worship service with this prayer, with this declaration, Shema, where they would say, here, let's tell the story that God has rescued us. Let's never forget it. Let us tell, us, let's tell each other this story every time we get together, that we were once in slavery, yet God has rescued us. He has taken us out of that. He's answered our prayers. He has come to our rescue. Let's tell each other all the time. They were to worship the Lord and they were to understand what it meant. It was a word that was a call to remember because they were people that often forgot. It was so important to remember this story that they, they took it at great lengths to remember it. How the maker of heaven and earth had called them into relationship with himself and how he would be their God and they would be his people. And even though their theology was developing over time, and at the time they knew that God was one, they knew that he was one in nature, and that they were to love him with everything they had, all of their soul and their heart and their might and their strength. At the time, most of the world had a whole host of gods, a whole host of deities, believing that they had power to bless them or power to curse them. And the power to bless or to curse was contingent on the people's obedience to, to do what the, the gods had required. And, and, and how well their life was pleasing to the gods, that's how well their life went and, and how well they were blessed. But Israel's God was different. You see, he was unchanging. He was not temperamental. And, and possibly the most surprising, he wasn't a God that sat back demanding the people to come to him. He pursued them and he called them out. 
And he was faithful to them even when they were faithless. They didn't know everything about God, but they knew that even though some people said, we all worship the same God, even though he comes by a different name, they knew that their God was different, that he was unique, that he was the one true God, the maker of all that there was. And so they were to love him. They were to love him with their whole heart and soul. What does that mean? Well, we love God with all of our heart and soul, the immaterial part of our person, the the, the, the things that motivate us, the things that inspire us, the, 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 thing, the place where our dreams and hopes originate from, the place where decisions are made. It is with this part of our, our person that we are to worship God and to love Him with all we have. They were to love Him with their whole might and their strength. What does that mean? Well, it is when our, what overflows from our heart and comes out into actions. We are to love God with those things, with the things that we say, and the things that we do and how we act, and the places where our feelings turn into behavior. We're to love God with those things. And so this was the heart of Israel's religion. What was the heart of Israel's religion? It was love for God. Love for God. Not a superficial love or a love based on feeling, but a love, a love for God with our whole person, our whole identity, on their weakest of days and their strongest of days, they were to remember God and to love Him. And their loneliest nights and their waiting for God to help them, they would remember all that He had done for them and they were to love Him. God's people were to be people of the law. And what was the law? It was the law of love for God. To love God with their heart and all their soul and all their strength. And Jesus would eventually uh, he would eventually uh, tell us the law of, uh, or he would eventually be confronted by the Jewish people, the, the leaders of the time. And, and they would ask him, hey, Jesus, what, is the, what do I need to do to be saved? What is the greatest thing I must do to be saved? And Jesus would tell, eventually tell us that the law of God sums up all of the law of all the prophets in the Old Testament. The law of loving God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. And the Jewish people, God's people, were to post this everywhere so that they wouldn't forget it. They were to put it everywhere. They were to put it on their doorposts. They were to nail it to the doorpost of their home. Here is just a picture of, of a depiction of how, how that is lived out. They would actually nail on their doorposts the, the Shema and these commands to love God. So every time they came home, they would be reminded that, that I am to come into my home as a as a law keeper, to love God as I live in this home. And every time I leave my home, I am to rem be reminded that I belong to God and He belongs to me. And I am to love God with all of my heart, mind, and strength. Every time I could not come into my home and greet my family without being reminded that, that I am to love God with everything. That even though I leave church and come home, it's not a retreat from being God's people. I remain as a lover of God in my home when I come and when I go. God's people were to, to put the law on their, their arms and bind them on their arms so that the law of God, the love of God, would guide them in all of their work. And so when they went to work and they went to the office or they went to the field or even when they remained home and, and cared for the home, they would be to remind themselves that what I am doing is to be done with the love, in the love of God. My next one's the favorite. They were to bind it to the frontlets of their, their head. They were to bind it to their foreheads. Uh, right between their eyes, so that, it, that every face-to-face -face conversation they had, they were to be reminded that I must 
treat this person with love as I love God with all of my heart and my soul and my mind. It's hard to insult somebody when you look like that, right? When you are looking them square in the face, when you look at another person, you're being reminded that I am to love you. I am to love God. Everywhere they went, everything that they did, this was to be the story of their life. And they went to great lengths to be reminded and to never forget that the story of their life was to love God. They were to teach it to their children, their families. They were to recount God's wondrous deeds. Never stop talking about it. You couldn't walk with your kids to the school bus without telling them of the love of God. You could not go to your workplace without being reminded of the love of God. You could not worship and speak to one another or do a business deal without being reminded of the love of God. It was to be their very life. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would be questioned by the spiritual leaders. What must we do to be saved? And, and Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is what the, the spiritual leaders said. And Jesus replied with saying, You're right. You're right. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. The law of God is a, is a love story. Christmas is a love story. The the story of God of sending his son is a love story for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is to remind us that he loves us and we are to love him with our whole lives. It's a story of one true God calling a people his beloved, though they've lived in perpetual disobedience and rebellion against him. God would never, ever, ever stop loving them. And this is the story that they would remind each other every day, multiple times a day. God calling on his people to obey his religion of love was ultimately a calling people to himself. To love God was to know him, to embrace him, to receive him, to be in relationship with him. And though they didn't know the kind of the cost that it would, that it would require for God, the great lengths he would go to and what it would cost him, it was greater than they could imagine. The story of God and his love and, and to, to love his people that are perpetually disobedient, rebellious, and sinful, who perpetually forget the story of God's work for us and love for us, it finds its climax with the one true God drawing his people to himself and purchasing their salvation through the blood of his own son. By giving his son, we find the climax in this story with God giving his son to us. God did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has loved us to great lengths. What does it cost him? What does his love cost us? It's cost him his only son whom he loves. You know, to think that we could have a response, a relationship and love uh, to the one true and powerful God, the maker of all the universe, was this uniquely strange and uncommon thing to believe in. And it's still quite remarkable today. Long time ago, when God's people, the, the, uh, the Israelites, would say that, well, actually, God has a relationship with us, and we have a relationship with Him, and He knows us, and we know Him, and He has given Himself to us. He's promised to to give himself to us forever. This was a very weird thing. That you're saying the maker of the universe 
and, and the holy and majestic God and the, of all that there is actually wants to be with you and, and you want to be with him and that's like, and you guys are getting along and there's a relationship and, the, and God's people said, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And the people are like, this is, this is absurd to think that you can have a relationship with God like that. And it's still kind of odd today. Have you ever stopped to wonder, like really truly wonder why God would go to such great lengths to love you? Why has he done that? Is there anyone in this world that you would give up your child for? Is, is there anyone that you would give up your spouse for? Is there anyone that you love that much that you would give up a child? Now, I, I could fathom, I mean, honestly, in the slightest degree, I could fathom doing that with someone I love and someone I trust and I care about, giving up my child for someone that I love so much. But could you do that with an enemy? The person that, that has continually, think of the person who's continually betrayed you and hurt you and abandoned you. Would you give up your, your, your only child f for that person? Would you give up your spouse to someone who continually hates you and inflicts pain on you? The Bible tells us this is the story of Christmas. This is what God has done for us. That it's easy to, to love and sacrifice people that are good to you and that you get along with, but do that with your enemies. And not only that, have you considered the great lengths God has gone, gone, gone through to, to love you, that he's given Jesus to you, his only son, as a sacrifice to die for you. That's how much his affection boils over for you. Have you loved God with all of your heart and soul and strength in response to that? When you, go, when you leave the house and when you come home and when you go to work and when you walk with your children and you, when you engage with your neighbors in your neighborhood, when you... And everything, you, have, you, have you as a response to God's tremendous love for you, have you loved him with all of your soul and heart and strength? And yet God who would love his people with such patient, good love, sending his son to become a man and ultimately sacrificing his son for them, this is the story of Christmas. To understand why God would do this, we need to go back all the way to the beginning. And I mean like all the way to the beginning, like in the beginning God created, like that beginning. Like we need to go back to why would you do this? Why would you give up all that you had and what you loved the most for your enemies, for people who continually are unfaithful to you? Why would you do that? So we ask that question and we need to hear and understand why would God even do that? And we find these answers, we got to go back. We have to go back to the story. We have to go back to the beginning. You, you know how it goes. God created and he separated light from dark and the, ski, the, the sky from the sea and the, the sea from the land. And he filled his creation with, with animals that crawled and, and, and animals that were flying and animals that were swimming. And then he saved the best for last and, and, and he saved the crown of his creation for us. He created man and woman. God the Father in agreement with God the Son and through the power of God the Holy Spirit says in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what set humans apart from all of creation was their relationship with God. That God said, I'm going to establish a relationship of love with you. And we see that in the opening pages of Scripture. That, that man and woman, they, they walked with God in the cool of the morning that God gave them a garden that was beautiful and lovely and good for all of their needs, and they, just, they enjoyed it. 
They were in paradise, and they walked with God. They woke up, and they were with God, and they, they walked around and enjoyed Him, and they, they talked with Him. And for a while, it was exactly as it should be. In the cool of the day, the first man and woman had a relationship with God, and everything was right in the world. And before long, Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent. Why did, have you ever stopped to think, again, we're telling a story here, why, have you ever stopped to think, why did, why did Satan come in the form of a serpent, form of a snake? The Bible tells us, it kind of gives us a clue of why he came in the form of a serpent. He says that, the Bible tells us that the serpent was among the most crafty of all the beasts that God had made. Crafty. He was crafty. Why is this a helpful quality for Satan to have, to embody, to be a crafty, a crafty enemy? How could, how could craftiness be an asset to Satan? Uh, this is a quality that is both good and can be bad as well. If you were to say, hey, you should meet my friend Susan, she's really crafty. <laughs> now, this can mean a couple things, right? I mean, great, we just gotta, we gotta share like Pinterest ideas and like, you know, I've got this room I wanna remodel, she can help me with that, right? So crafty can mean that, but crafty can also be something else. I got my friend Susan, she's really crafty, you should meet her. I don't want any part of her. You know, like she sounds like she's gonna trick me, she's gonna like, she's gonna betray me, she's gonna manipulate me. So it can mean good and bad. These are great qualities though. Craftiness is a great quality for someone who is a good storyteller. Someone who's an artist, someone who, uh, is, is a good storyteller. You see up to this point, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had been told one story. In their whole, they knew no other story. They knew one story. God created them, God was good, and they had a great relationship of love with God. That was the story that they knew. Why did Satan need to be crafty? Because he was about to tell them a second story. He was going to tell them a different story that was going to could that compete with their, their only story they ever knew. It can mean creative and artistic or subtle. It even means brilliant. Great qualities for a storyteller. Think about it. Until this moment, up to this moment for Adam and Eve, mockery and deceit were unknown. They had no idea what it was. Every single word that uttered out of their mouths was true. Every single thought that they had was pure. Every word that the husband and wife spoke to each other were to build up and were honest and life-giving. Every single word that they heard from God was honest. They had no thought. They had no imagination of evil. They had no context for deceit. They had no context for, for mockery. They had no context for anything like that. They had no idea how to guard their heart from competing stories because they had no need to. Everything was good. All they had ever known was the true story of God's love and fellowship. And now, here comes a brilliant storyteller. And for the first time, they're introduced to another story, a competing story that says, what if God is not as good as he says he is? And all of a sudden, they are introduced to another story. For the first time in their lives, they have something that is different from everything they've known. And they wonder, what if God is not as good as he says he is? What if his love for you is incomplete? What if it is unfaithful? What if his timing is wrong? What if he's unwise? And what if he's dangerous? What if you can't trust him? What if 
What if in all of God's doing, he really created you to kind of figure it out on your own? What if you have to complete in your life what God missed? And so you see in this craftiness, Satan is tempting them and telling them a second story to get Eve to think, wow, I never thought of that. Maybe that is true. What if when God said not to eat of the fruit in the center of the garden, he was testing you? He knows that when you eat it, you'll be better off. You'll be fine. And in Genesis 3, so when, when, so when the woman saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Follow the story here. As soon as their teeth sunk, broke into the skin of this fruit, all creation groaned. Can you picture that? Just that air deflated out of creation, just the groaning. As soon as her teeth broke the skin of the fruit, lust, shame, fear, guilt, mistrust, blame shifting, selfishness, and loneliness rushed into their hearts. It's tragedy. For the first time, they question, was God good? Is God good? Can he be trusted? Is he safe? Does he still love us? They believed the first alternate story that was presented to them, and it wrecked them completely. And God found them. God sought after them, and he called for them. And God found them, and they were afraid, and they were naked, and they were crouched behind a bush. And a bush that was created to give them comfort and enjoyment is now used to hide from God. And that morning they walked with God, and that afternoon they hid from God, afraid, using the things that God would meant for their blessing, they're now using to get away from God. And they couldn't undo anything that had been done. They couldn't go back. Their relationship of love with God was now utterly broken. And his response to them in that moment is what Christmas is all about. He says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to save you from this. I am going to rescue you from this. You cannot go back. And nothing can be done to undo what you have, what you have done. But I am going to take it upon myself to fix what you have broken. And in that very moment, after the greatest rebellion that the world had ever known, God was on the scene and he was telling a story. He says, you have, you have forgotten my story, you have rebelled against my story, you have believed an alternate story, and now I am going to tell you a new story. All this pain and suffering and sadness will end. The serpent and mankind would contend with one another forever to the very end. All, a, descendants would, a descendant would come from the woman and would crush the serpent's head. And so in this story, God was telling them that there was no going back. From now on, life would be very hard, and it would be hard, and it was, and it still is. They would have to work hard and to sweat. They would have to produce from the, from the ground and make a life for themselves through, through back-breaking activity. 
Bringing a child into the world would be very painful and uncomfortable and difficult. Leaving the world would be very painful and sad, and death would, would be a result of their sin, and it, they would struggle through life. But God would provide them in their struggle, provide for them in their struggle. It's possible, as, as parents are telling the story, think about it, uh, long ago as parents are telling the story of Adam and Eve and they were ashamed, and they were naked for the first times, and all the things, all the, the only thing that these little kids can think about is like, are they, so what are they doing? Just, they're just naked? Like they're just walking around naked and ashamed? Like when did they get clothes? Did they ever get clothes? Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. For the first time, Right after God promises, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to make this better. For the first time, the blood of an innocence, the blood of innocent was shed to cover the shame of the guilty. It wasn't the man or the woman who shed their blood to make the coverings. This was the work of God himself. And because of the blood of the lamb or the, the, the calf in the garden at the time, whatever it was, the man and the woman were able to come out from that bush of hiding come out from a place of hiding and come face to face with God again because God was providing for them because of the shedding of blood of innocent. And Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will do this. Even in the garden, God was telling them the Christmas story. And he said, one will come through this long life of suffering. One will come and he will crush Satan's head and he will accomplish what I have promised. Hear, hear and listen. Hear and listen and understand this story that God has told to us. Central to God's story at the garden and at the cross and in our lives now is that we are able to come out of a place of hiding and be face to face with God in a relationship of love and companionship and fellowship because innocent blood was shed to cover our guilt. It was always because of his grace. Christmas is not then this, it's not a, a sentimental feeling that fills our hearts and fills our homes with, with glad tidings of, 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 of being good to one another. It is a true story that collides with every other story. The story of Christmas is not meant to just assimilate into our lives. Don't you see that this, this story of Christmas is meant to take over our lives? It is supposed to define our lives. It is supposed to be our life. The story of Christmas is supposed to be our very lives. It's supposed to rule us in everything we say when we come and go from our home. It is meant to rule us when we talk to one another. It is meant to rule us when we work in our workplace or keep our homes. It's meant to rule us. And you and I need this story. We need to be reminded of this story. We need to tell it to each other every day and every moment. We need to rehearse it and practice it and draw out its impl implications to the nth degree because we so easily forget. It's a story that we tell our children as we tuck them in bed at night. It's a story that we tell each other when we sit down and eat. It's a story that we tell each other when we're grieving and having hardship. It's a story that we tell each other when we're celebrating God's good blessings. You see, this is the story of Christmas, and it's a true story. Our guilt and shame are a result of failing to remember this true story. And worse, it's, a, it's often a failure to believe it that we can come out of hiding and come face to face in a relationship of love with God, sin completely forgiven because of the shed blood of the innocent, because of what Jesus did for us. The Christmas story doesn't begin at the, at the manger. 
It begins much sooner than that. It begins with acknowledging the rebellion that has happened and how we do that every day and how God has promised to us. He's promised to fix it. He's promised to fix it, and He does. Because Christmas happened, because God came to us and was born a man in full humility and vulnerability, everything He has said will come true. And so we wait. So hear, hear, O church. Hear, O church, that God is one. That we don't all worship the same God in our culture and in our world. There is one true maker of all that there is, and He has a relationship with us through faith in Jesus Christ because the innocent blood was spilled for us. Hear, O church, that we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength, that we are to love one another as He has loved us. Hear, O church, that we are to understand this story and and recognize how other stories compete with this story and, and aim to tell us the one true story of the world. And we are to say, no, that is not the true story. The true story is that God is a God of love and relationship and giving me everything that I need. And I am to love him with all of my life, everything that I do. God showed up. He showed up in our greatest need, in the need, the greatest need in the garden. He did not leave them to themselves, left in hiding. He showed up and said, I'm going to fix it. It's going to be hard for you, but it's going to be harder for me. I'll soon tell you what it will cost me. It'll cost me the very son that I have, that I love. He showed up not because of our strength, of our love for him, but because he said he would. And so we, we tell the story of Christmas to one another, not because it helps us become better people. My encouragement for you is not just to be a, a nicer person this year. The, the, the story of Christmas is not that for a few weeks out of the year, we can put aside our selfishness. The story of Christmas is that because even though you continue to be selfish, God will not give up on you. Even though you fail to show up for him, he will show up for you. He's a promise-keeping God. And that is the story of Christmas, and it's a true story. Let's tell this story to one another in everything that we do. We can trust in Him. Let's pray.